Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. I am Peter Sheldow, and I write about art. My name is Jared Ernest, and I am a trashy sweetheart, and I also write about art. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. I mean, all the great symbols of America are empty. The river, the, the sea, the open road, the prairie, the whiteness of the whale. I want people to play with, and I want it to be fun, and I want it to be smart, and I want it to be rigorous. And so write something that will make someone want to play with you. I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David Werner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, the art writers Peter Sheldahl and Jarrett Ernest. Peter Sheldahl has been a prominent voice in the New York art world since the 1970s, producing some of the most vivid and insightful writing about art of our time. He's also a poet, and his care for language is evident in everything he does. He began writing criticism for art news in the 1960s, moving on to The Village Voice, The New York Times, and Art in America. In 1998, he became a staff writer at The New Yorker before becoming the magazine's art critic, a position he continues to hold. Jared Ernest is a writer and artist living in New York City. He was faculty at the Free Experimental Art School, Bruce High Quality Foundation University, and his writing has appeared in the Brooklyn Rail, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Art in America, among other publications. Jared's also a close friend of mine. He and I edited a book recently together, and he's now in the process of editing a book of Peter's writing. We started the conversation talking about the single moment that sent Peter on his path to writing and thinking about art. He was in his 20s and hitchhiking in Italy, where he met up with a friend, the American poet and artist George Schneeman, who was living in Tuscany at the time. George took Peter on a special tour of the frescoes of the great Renaissance painter Piero della Francesca. He took me on the Piero tour in the back of his Vespa, which is um, a rezzo de San Sepulcro. And, uh, but in between, there's this little town called Monterchi, which has, it's in a museum now, but in then, then it was in its original location, which was in a cemetery chapel about the size of a tool shed, uh, a, a fresco of the pregnant Madonna, Madonna del Parto, very unusual subject. Uh, this vastly pregnant young girl in a pensive pose in a bell-shaped tent and two mirror image angels, purple and green, are sweeping aside the, the leaves of the tent, you know, and, and the shape of the tent and the shape of her belly. It's, it's like, it's sort of like a secret within a secret within a secret. And um, it's very unusual. I mean, it's in this, it's incredibly out of the way, very simple place. But, you know, I burst into tears. I mean, it was like, it was a hot August day and, you know, kind of dazed. And I had an epiphany. I mean, I had a kind of religious experience, which I believe, I believe they happen. I believe they're very real. I believe they're very consequential. But it was, uh, it was basically, it, it, whatever I was going to do in my life would have something to do with that. And I'm still trying to figure out what that is. That feeling or whatever. Well, that, it, that, it was something, it wasn't a feeling. It's like, it's just a, more an understanding, more, more, more a kind of uh, connection. 
words absolutely fail. I mean, it was just, uh, it basically made me discovering a positive place to be alone. Mm. Wow. You know, it's like loneliness being the great besetting condition of Americans. Uh, and it was like one, a place I could be alone and and then turn around and come back out. You know, it's like I could come back, I, I could come back out with something. I could say, you know. But did you feel like alone in the presence of the Piero? Because for me, I... I understand what you mean about almost like this this bracket or blinder around experience mm -hmm. with a work of art, but I, when I'm really communing with an artwork, I really feel like other consciousness, the consciousness of the person who made it, the other people who um, have no, been involved I, with it. No, I, I know what you mean. I I work all of that in when I come back out. This question of alone, I just want to ask a little more about aloneness. Peter said sort of the American American condition, yeah. or yeah. Is that something you feel? I mean, I think a lot about the kind of isolation one feels even among people or among stimulus in America. I mean, all the great symbols of America are empty. Uh -huh. You know, it's the, the, the river, the, the sea, the open road, the prairie, the whiteness of the whale. You know, it's, it's about the light across the water in, in Gatsby. I mean, it's all about the feeling of sublime or horrendous or fatal aloneness. I mean, I have like a really different relationship to what Peter's talking about. And part of the fact is that Peter had a, a very particular and eccentric childhood. And I, in a very different way, had an extremely idiosyncratic childhood, which was I grew up pretty isolated. Like I grew up in rural South Florida. So wrap your mind around what that means. And on a ranch with orange groves and, you know, a very, very tight nuclear family. And all of the land around where I lived was extended family, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. So I didn't have a conception of like a social world. Like I would go to school and then I would come home and like the things were never, they never touched each other. And that never seemed weird to me. So I spent hours and hours of my childhood without playmates, with like my little brother, but like, you know, walking around in the wilderness. And I think that that is very useful because it teaches you well, it develops imagination, which I think is a really important thing. It's something I'm very interested in and, and find mysterious. But also, it gives you a kind of fortification about being alone. And I think what Peter is describing is an absolutely foundational aspect to art and to making and to being alive, which is the confrontation of you by yourself in relationship to... Well, for me, for me, aloneness is... Uh... Accompanied by anxiety to the degree, to the verge of panic. Uh -huh. it's, it's actually the it, same it, for me. I mean, that's why I was going to ask that, because you seem actually quite I resilient. love being alone. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is my religious background is very different in that Peter's branch of Protestantism, which was a kind of Norwegian Lutheranism, is very harsh. And I, my parents were evangelical Pentecostal Christians, and that's the same thing. It's like you to God, and like there, no interference. Yeah, but but a lot of fun. But and it's a lot of fun. It's yeah. singing. No, no it's, I think of, I yeah. think of the Protestant soul as you close your eyes, picture a very cold, very clean porcelain sink, a bathroom appliance. I mean, it's it's uh, there is there's no comfort, none. And to me, it's like ecstatic. It's like you're yeah. alone, but it's ecstasy. But then I have to ask, how did you, 
how did you combat? I mean, you you have a job that requires lots of aloneness. So how, how, what are the coping mechanisms? I mean, writing is, is very spooky to me. It's, it's like, you know, it takes me a long time to get started. Sometimes it takes me three days to write a first sentence. And then I'm writing, and I'm sort of really not there. You know, I, I, you know it's, and then, then, of course, there's rewriting. But, I mean, actually, actually that's, that's kind of pleasurable, just taking, taking a sixth sentence and making it well. You know, is, uh, you can sort of be present for doing that. Well, it's it feels to me like what we do is mediate the like alone and the world dynamic in as a balance. And oh. like for I love being alone and I love being with other people. Oh. And I really need them yeah, to be. I have be trouble separate. both in both directions, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, no, I'm I think I'm I'm socially awkward and uh, desperately lonely. You know, and uh, <laughs> you can send your contributions to the following. One of my solutions to my your, your church, uh, version of this is um, is why interviews have become such an important thing for me and why I like them is that it's like you draw a little magic circle around something you do every day, which is like talk to people that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. But like in the space of doing the interview, you're completely committed to the rules of being present and listening and talking to them. Well, you're, you're remarkable, Jared. You're the best Man, that's when I met you. You interviewed me, and I think the first question you asked was, when did you first regard language as a material? And I thought, boy, that is such a wonderful question. (laughs) And then we were off. And, um, I mean, the proof is in your interviews with other people. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, you're kind of developing now, Jared, a new form of criticism, I would say, or at least you're pushing toward a form of criticism that incorporates someone else's voice, or at least allows you to incorporate someone else's voice as you approach the artwork or the critic. I mean, are, are you sort of conscious of how the interview form has sort of led to this critical form, whatever that becomes? You know, I mean, it doesn't need to be a dramatic break or anything like that, but certainly it seems like something that you're really exploring. Well, I'm like painfully conscious of it, but I would say, but maybe sometimes pain is a good thing. Uh, I think maybe every critic is supposed to figure out a form for themselves. like, And that form is the product of things that they're good at and things they're not good at. And well, and then, then of course, there's, there's publications and editors. Oh, right. Well, that's a big problem, too. Well, yeah. it's, it's not a problem. It's, it's the condition. You know, it, it's why, it's what makes it a vocation. I needed discipline. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I had a, wild imagination and musical sense of language. But I like to say that, you know, when I was working on like small city daily papers in my early 20s, it was the old copy editors, these fat, burned out, drunk, you know, uh, copy editors around the city desk with chomping cigars. I learned more in a day from those guys than, you know, the Iowa Writers Workshop could have, could have taught me. And, you know, and it was exactly what I needed. Grammar, syntax, you know, uh, clarity. Well, I think one of the things I've picked up from what Peter has done and that how I understand what I am working towards differently is that Peter's criticism are like little gem-like meditations on consciousness. It's like the story, the narration of a consciousness rubbing against this object in the world and how it unfolds sequentially. And um, and for him, it's always only between the object and, and himself or the character that's the yeah. thing. Well, that that was I mean, that was a consequence of being an autodidact. I mean, I was like, 
I think I've, I've never. Wait, all you I've, had I mean, was suddenly, you know, I was writing our criticism starting in 1965 for Art News because all the poets were doing it, and people liked how I did it. You know, I think I discovered immediately that the only thing in the world in which I was the world leading expert was my experience. Okay. Well, I think that my the, what I'm talking about is a is a reaction to the same thing, but with a with a different personality. Which is, I'm interested in the artwork, and I'm interested in the voice in the art, the figure of the person who made it, yeah. and triangulating between oh. those things. And that's the same impulse of autodidacticism, where you're like, "All right, you made this thing. I can talk to you, and I can look at that, and and I want to." Well, no, it is modulate. It, it, them. it basically. I think it, it it always involves a projection. That's why it seems like a story. I mean, it's, you know, I want to be inside the artist. You know, I want to know, I want to know why this thing is the way it is. When you are doing this, the idea of speaking to the artist in the process of looking at the object is not what you're after. The projection's coming from you. I want to be the artist. I don't care about the artist. You know, it's like I'm writing for the reader. But you're... You're kind of taking the voice and and bringing it into your exploration of the work sometimes, not all well, the time. I so I talked about the way that I grew up in which I was formed as a whole little being in this isolated world with extreme interest and fascination and curiosity about what other people might be like, but not having access to them. And it's like I am really interested in psychoanalysis. And so if if I wanted to, I could make an entire aesthetic and conceptual map of my worldview based on things that I saw before I was five years old. You know, whether it's Grace Jones coming out of a box on Pee-wee's Playhouse or whether it's Disney's Little Mermaid. And the thing about The Little Mermaid is that in her song, Part of Your World, she's like, I want to be where the people are. You know, I want to ask them my questions and get some answers. And that was really something as like a little gay boy in Southern Florida was like my raison, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And it, part of it had to do with like this fantasy of going to a place where people were interesting and wanting to know what they were like. But it also sounds like, Peter, you're coming from language first. Uh, like you discovered an affinity for visual objects and for art, uh, but that really came after uh, your initial interest in language. I, I stumbled upon a career, yeah. And you, in a way, seems like your early experiences, those are visual experiences, a sort of intense relationship to something that you're seeing. Visual and tactile. You know, my parents, my dad says that he didn't say this, but growing up, I always heard that I was going to have lost one of my hands by the time I was 30 because that I touched too many things. <laughs> and... Um, I'm just past that mark. You know, I have both of my hands. <laughs> it was my 30th birthday. I called my dad and was like, hey, by the way, I have both my hands. And he's like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, but it was always sensual, very intense, mm -hmm. haptic, and visual. And I followed that, you know, because it was what I, I felt was alive. And then the language thing, I mean, I always was a big reader because in always read incessantly, but I really have been kind of dragging myself up <laughs> into the temple of language much after the fact. I guess, though, Peter, you're also very sensory and can't really forget that. I mean, I'm reminded of reading your account of Las Meninas, uh, the painting by Velasquez at the Prado. Um, we don't have the picture here, but it's a painting of the 17th century court painting of members of the royal court and their servants, and you really describe in detail the kind of play of eyes, the intensity um, of looking at that painting and the feelings it produced in you. I was absolutely fixated, and I became obsessed with looking at these people faster than they could look at me. I don't know how that was supposed to work. 
<laughs> uh, you know, but I was I was delirious, you know, and and meaning your eyes would sort of flip back well, and forth. I just I just kept sort of you know it's like I tried to rewind the eighth of a second or something, you know. It's like and it just I was I don't know. I mean I I'm just reporting what I remember. Okay, at which point I had an oral uh, overheard hallucination. Uh, you know, the maids had these big dresses, you know, uh, and turning, right? And I heard a rustle of crinolines. Now, uh, you know... Time to go to sleep, right? Time well, to, time no, to sleep. It, I said, yeah, well, exactly. Well, I had two thoughts, one of which was, oh, that's what that sounds like. <laughs> and, and the other was, get your ass to the hotel now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that's... And Las Meninas I refer to a lot because it's so intense. It's so great that that things that happen normally with other artworks and, by the way, with other things in life, I don't... The aesthetic is not bordered, you know, it's not mm -hmm. bordered That's around very art. The aesthetic, yeah. the aesthetic is ambient, it's everywhere. But the thing is, because it affected me so deeply, uh, I have told myself, retold myself a story, thought about it, it becomes more and more my painting and less and less Velasquez's. So suddenly it's back to being a dirty piece of cloth, you know, and, you know, as soon as I'm out, my experience starts to deflect from, from the reality. And which happens, by the way, I think in absolutely everything in life. I mean, memory is a utterly fallible. And in this case, it's just uh, dramatized by, by the, uh, the intensity of that work. I love that story. And one of the things that I think we talk about a lot or are both interested in is paying attention to all of the reactions and feelings and the way that they mm. shift through time. Mm. Some of the most interesting art experiences that I've had happened with an immediate feeling of absolute physical revulsion. Oh, yeah. where I thought, this is terrible. Well, you know I think I think that I think I think that is physiologically inevitable and healthy. I mean, and somebody who sees something new and immediately likes it is lying. But it was like, I re definitely remember I had a, when I was in high school, I was painting every day, like hours and hours every day. And I had a book on contemporary art. And I remember going through it and seeing a picture of a Paul McCarthy installation mm -hmm. and wanting to throw up, like uh, just being horrified. Uh, and I, I, I would be there with Paul McCarthy right now, actually. And you don't even have to be Freud. Like, I took, a like, a gold spray paint can and, like, spray painted it out of my book because uh, uh for sublimation. And uh, so, but then I became obsessed. You know, I thought about it a lot. And I think the, the, the perversion of it, the darkness of it, really I felt identified. Everything else, you, you read a book, you look, you see a play, you see a movie, you see a dance listen to music, it, it all requires time, and you re, you have to remember, to, you have to piece it together from memory. You do that with, with art, but you go back and look. I mean, you can check it, bring it more and more in sync with what is actually there. I mean, one of the experiences that I had like that that was really important to me that, like, opened up, it kind of contracted and expanded time, was I became obsessed with color and, like, the problems of color, largely because it seemed like a foundational philosophical and experiential thing that no one was in control of, mm -hmm. so that I couldn't, you know, you could get to the top of the discourse pretty fast, because there's not very, very much, you, you only get so far. And it's, um, so a friend of mine 
Elisa Yaskavage, the painter, is like a color obsessed and the history of color and how it works. And so I was talking with her a lot and I was like, I want you to teach me everything you know about color. And Lisa was like, you want a challenge? Like, well, go there. Like, you have to go, go look at these paintings and just look at them until you figure something out about the color. So one of those paintings was a Van Gogh painting in the Lehman collection of a baby. And the first impression of that painting is like, what the fuck? Like, this is a little ugly alien. Why? Why? There's a lot of why where I was like, uh, and I looked at it and looked at it and the colors on the face are so strange. They're um, kind of muddy greens and ochres and like a pink and the background is this insane yellow and you think what is this this is and the more you look at it there becomes a moment okay you look at how we made it you look at how the colors are relating to each other and then i had a moment where suddenly it snapped into the correct light relationships that created a color that created a feeling but that was all utterly plausible it almost felt like naturalism in a way mm-hmm, that i would mm-hmm. you would never have expected mm-hmm. on approaching it well that's incredible about van gogh i mean it, it is like it's like no matter how sick and swirly the paint, it just feels like a picture of something. And like so suddenly I was sitting there and really overwhelmed with the emotion of this man confronting this baby. And you just know that he's thinking this baby doesn't know what the fuck it's in for in this world. <laughs> it just came into this world and there's beautiful things and there is horror. And um, it doesn't even know. Like, mm-hmm. I think that... Yeah. It, and it was like such a like a deep feeling of communication that I was having through looking at color and just what was there. And um, it became like a really important painting for me. Also because it seems on first on first glance so unimportant. But something that both of you have done now, you did it with Las Meninas and you just did it with with the Van Gogh, is construct a narrative around a static object, right? And so one thing that, that I think people don't think about when they think about criticism or when they think about great artwork is that it actually, part of what defines it as good is that it opens itself up to the possibility of constructing a narrative around it. Well, bad bad art has a very short track. I mean, really, in a way, when I, you know, as a critic, I walk in, I'm trying, I'm trying to exhaust and, and deconstruct and dismiss the artwork. And, and, and most artwork makes that very easy. Have there been, have you undergone a change that has radically refigured how you've looked at an artwork? Meaning you saw it and reacted one way and you changed so much that in fact, when you saw it again, it had a completely different effect on you. Well, sure. I mean, uh, uh, my constant case is Philip Gustin, you know, when he started doing the cartoony paintings. You know, I had, in the 60s, I absolutely revered him for this super refined, anxious abstraction, you know, which has seemed... To me, it was like the absolute peak of sensibility that I could imagine for myself. And suddenly there's a Ku Klux Klan, you know, and I was horrified. I hated it. And uh, and I maintained that for, for quite a while, uh, for like a decade, even as painter friends of mine said, you're crazy, these are great. And, and finally, I think, you know, one night maybe in my sleep, you know, I just woke up and said, duh, you know. Uh, I think that... I've noticed shifts in, like, the things that I want to look at. Like, there was a period where, like, I would just breeze by still lifes in a meet mm-hmm. where I was like, stuff? Uh-huh. Good, good like, example. stuff on a table? I don't want to look at stuff on a table. And then there became a period where I found a kind of atmosphere emotionally 
and uh, a space for thinking in still life painting that became very important to me. And it helped me understand something foundational about what painting is, like really what a painting is. And I'm not talking about looking at like Cezanne still lives. I'm talking about, you know, Chardin, Zubarin, but like down the line, what it means, or Mirandi, what it means to... Yeah. Well, Mirandi is, Mirandi is, is fabulous. I mean, he's, you know, it's like he never gets it. You know, he, he knows he knows what it is. It's like, but he's not, he's not paying, trying to paint what's there. He, he knows that. He wants to paint where it is. Metaphysically, cannot be done. But, but the intensity of it and the consistency of it would just about break your heart. If you guys each had a piece of advice to give to someone who wanted to write today, maybe a young person, what would that be? What advice would you give to, say, a young art critic today? So I started writing because I had a, a teacher in art school that was a poet named Bill Berkson. And I was being a total brat, and um, he kind of liked it, you know. And he would just give me books to read. Oh, he, here's um, Auden's uh, The Dyer's Hand. You know, casually, just mm, yeah. pick this up for you. And um, one thing that he told me when I started writing was something that he said that the editor and critic Thomas B. Hess said to him when he started writing at the same age, which was, just write it like you're telling a really smart friend who has no time for your nonsense. And I thought... Well, Thomas B. Hess actually told me, my, my first first thing I heard before I was an art critic, was, you know, in 65 I was back in New York, you know, on the Lower East Side and all the poetry and art criticism and I need to write, so I called Art News, which everybody wrote for then. And and I got it on the line and, and tried to sort of stammered about why I, you know, knew the job. And he said, listen, never mind all that. Just tell me what makes you think you're qualified to walk into a gallery where some poor bastard has his paintings and to tell him they're no good. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I had tremendous good luck in mentors when I started. Well, what I would say to, to anyone who wants to start writing about art is come play with me. I mean, I want people to play with. And I want it to be fun, and I want it to be smart, and I want it to be rigorous. And so write something that will make someone want to play with you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, think, I think on that note, that's a, as good a place to end it as ever. All right. Jared and Peter, thank you so much. That was really, really fun. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidzwerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Zwerner and Slate Studios.